Welcome to the Daily Boogie. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Daily Boogie. It's good to be with you. In light of the events of last night, the Donald Trump presidential address and the response from the Democrats today, I thought we'd do a little bit of rhetorical speech analysis, something we haven't done for quite some time on the show. I think the last one was the Christopher Wray address after uh, the Peter Strzok hearings. So it'll be fun to dive into that once again and analyze, try to put you in the mind of a speech writer and try to ascertain various inferences that are trying to be created in political speech because political speech is it's it's more of a tool rather than a weapon you know a lot of people in the corporate press make the assumption either knowingly or unknowingly perhaps for their own political reasons and agendas they push forward the argument that political speech is a weapon that's wielded against people. It's, it's actually more nuanced than that. And, you know, because a, you know, a certain politician said something, oh, they're attacking this person. And that might be the way it appears on the surface at a very shallow level of analysis. But more often than not, political speech is actually a tool. You're trying to achieve some kind of objective. You're trying to achieve some kind of outcome. And you're trying to direct your speech to appeal to certain audiences for certain things. You know, you're trying to speak to certain people at certain times in certain ways. And I do think that if we can collectively, as a society, you know, because people just understood this shit, you know, even decades ago, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. But it seems today in our modern society that this level of understanding of what political speech is and what people are saying without necessarily saying it, what subtext they're trying to hit, what objectives they're trying to achieve, what audiences they're speaking to. I think a lot of this has gone by the wayside and been replaced by a perpetual outrage cycle where every form of political speech is some kind of war or attack and it's something that we need to react emotionally to. So I think if we can break down a few of the mechanics around both the Donald Trump address and the Democrat Party, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer response to it, then, you know, we might help to chip away at that barrier that a lot of, a lot of us have, that emotional barrier that causes us to, you know, react without rationality in a lot of cases. So this isn't necessarily going to be a cheerleading thing, you know. Uh, This is going to be mechanics, brutal dissection of what took place last night. I may offer some opinions along the way or at the end. We will be pausing at different times throughout to discuss what's being talked about, what kind of inferences are being created, what's the effect on the audience, how is this meant to affect the audience, what's the emotional reaction the speechwriter is going for, all these kinds of things throughout the show. So... But for the most part, this is a rhetorical analysis, a speech analysis. So I hope you stick around and I hope you get something out of it. 
if you do and you'd like to become a supporter of the show, please head over to patreon.com. If you'd like to subscribe to the show, please hit that subscribe button on your preferred podcast player. And by all means, if you want to disagree, if you want to hurl insults, if you want to react emotionally to anything that you hear today, uh, head over to Twitter at Boogie Bumper and just leave a comment under this post where this podcast is posted under this tweet. So without further ado, let's play it in the order that the world saw it, beginning with the President of the United States, Donald John Trump. My fellow Americans. Now, first things first is, uh, obviously, if you're listening to this, you can't see it, but the setting is the Oval Office, which brings with it a you know, a, a genuine sense of authority, tradition, history, and grandiose. And Donald Trump's sitting there. He's got some picture frames behind him. He's got some medals, it looks like, on the other side, some badges, the American flag and the eagle flag. There's something uh, eerily, would you say, I, I, I know it's a traditional line and I know everybody says it, but there's, there is a certain level of gravitas that comes with the opening statement to these addresses, you know, my fellow Americans, right? You, you know if you hear my fellow Americans on the TV that something serious is about to be said, something serious is about to happen. Like nobody goes into a coffee shop and says, my fellow Americans, I'll have a double grande latte. You know, my fellow, my fellow Americans, fill her up with super. <laughs> that doesn't happen. It's always my fellow Americans, here's some shit for you to consider. So this is not a campaign rally. The silly part about it is uh, for the days leading up to this, the corporate press were, you know, debating amongst themselves, what, should we show it or not? He's only going to lie. It's only going to be propaganda. What's the point? But when you hear those words, my fellow Americans, even the people who were having those conversations should realize that this is not a campaign rally. This is not intended for bombast. This is a very serious occasion and something that happens quite rarely. And it's, it's a kind of privilege that's afforded the office of the president. And, you know, it's worthy of the average citizen's attention, put it that way. Just, just that one opening sentence, my fellow Americans, it conveys all of those things, even to an outsider like me. And, of course, it's a very easy setup for what follows. Tonight, I am speaking to you because there is a growing humanitarian and security crisis at our southern border. Every day, Customs and Border Patrol agents encounter thousands of illegal immigrants trying to enter our country. We are out of space to hold them, and we have no way to promptly return them back home to their country. Now, see, think about the context of this speech and the response that we'll listen to later. But think about the context and the environment in the public sphere, in the media sphere, et cetera, et cetera, where this speech is taking place. Now, obviously, because of the things we just said about these kinds of addresses, <clears throat> it's vital that it's not used to talk about coffee or, you know, the price of fuel, but rather you have to convey a sense of emergency, a sense of urgency, so particular use of language here, you know, crisis, emergency, these are vital and it's vital that you use it early on in the piece. You know, you, you don't want to be pissing around the edges here. You need to make maximum impact as early as possible. 
and you know in doing so you you ensure that people hang on your every word for the remainder of the speech like in theory now the environment around this is you know Donald Trump and the Democrats are kind of engaged in a game of chicken here seeing who will blink first there's a government shutdown Donald Trump wants the Democrats to approve a certain amount of money for a southern border wall and wall security more broadly, which I thought was very clever in his speech, which he will get into later, we'll discuss then, instead of just making it about a wall. And the Democrats obviously don't want to do that for various reasons. Uh, you know, number one would be their supporters probably won't approve of it. And number two, they can't be giving, they can't be seen to be giving the president that they have opposed so uh, feverishly over the last three years what he wants. Um, arguably, that's, they would think that that's not why they got the votes that they did in the recent midterm election. So it's, they're at loggerheads here. It's a game of chicken. It's about who blinks first. I'm not denying that there are things going on behind the scenes, but we can only assess in this space what we see directly in front of us. We can't talk about things that we don't know. We can't talk about the unknown conversations being had in the offices and stuff because at that point you're just plucking things out of thin air and hoping that it sounds good. That's theorizing. But this is, you know, this is more of an analytical exercise, not a, a theoretical exercise. So with all that in mind, uh, this opening statement, is is attempting to express upon the audience a sense of urgency and you need to hear this. I also like the use of home at the end there. We have no way to promptly return them back home to their country <clears throat> because even just the injection of that one word, you can see how subtle this is and why people in the corporate media are very, very good at this stuff because just the injection of one word can completely change uh, the inference can completely change the reaction to that particular statement. So, you know, for example, if if you say back home to their country, now home implants upon the audience an emotional feeling of warmth, of security, of sense, family, good things. If you were to leave the word home out, then you say back to their country. It sounds much colder. It's, it's from a distance, it's detached, it's not relatable, right? Think about it. We, we can't get these people, we can't get these people back home or we can't get these people back to their country. You know, one says uh, we're returning people to, you know, a good place and the other one says we don't want them in our place. To, to, it's only one word, but it's a very, very different impression that's left on the audience probably subconsciously to a large extent. So that's why I like the injection of the word home in there. America proudly welcomes millions of lawful immigrants who enrich our society and contribute to our nation. But all Americans are hurt by uncontrolled illegal migration. It strains public resources and drives down jobs and wages. Among those hardest hit are African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans. Now, something we've talked about in previous episodes is there is indeed a difference in definition between immigration and migration. So I appreciate the fact that in this speech, the speechwriter or the speechwriters or the president himself took the time to make that distinction. You know, uncontrolled immigration versus uncontrolled migration. You know, immigration, you're talking about uh, singular 
you're talking about individuals, um, you know, being selected for various jobs, you know, or, you know, some kind of position or being brought to the country for some kind of reason. Migration, you're talking about, uh, you know, a group, a large swath of people. And, you know, that's another inference that's implanted on the audience there because immigration is, you know, it's, it's very human specific. And it's like, again, we're talking about individual immigration. When you talk about migration, well, geese migrate, you know, animals migrate. You know, I'm not, I'm not comparing people to geese or animals, but what I'm saying here is the word, the wording here is important. The structuring is important in order to create a cognitive environment for the listener for what follows in the next part of the speech. Something that becomes an easy attack point, on the other hand, is the reference so quickly to jobs. You know, this this puts a strain on our public resources. I think that's fine. Uh, you know, it costs us jobs. It, it's just a, it's an opening. It's a very easy attack point for your opponents to say, well, you're, you're complaining about immigrants taking your jobs. You know, what do you hate competition? Blah, 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 blah. You know how it goes. So even though it might be true for, say, um, you know, people without higher education, people working in blue collar jobs, etc. Um, just putting that in there in the manner that he did, it leaves an opening for your opponent to attack on and say, you know, you're being racist because you're worried, you know, they're not taking white people's jobs, etc. You know, the usual malarkey that goes on. I don't necessarily have a problem with the direct reference to um, among those hardest hit are African Americans and Hispanic Americans, but I do think if there's progress to be made for Donald Trump in this area of communication, then less appeals to uh, specific ethnic groups would probably be a positive in uh, you know that that middle space of people. I know you know I'm not somebody who necessarily thinks Donald Trump's racist. A lot of people do. I think you know there is a large group in the middle who you know don't really think he's racist, but um, don't necessarily like, you know, certain things that he might have said about certain ethnic groups in the past or what have you, and, you know, rightly or wrongly. So if you were trying to dispense with that myth, dispense with that image at least, then, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that among those hardest hit African Americans and Hispanic Americans, I would have just left it at, um, you know, the totality of Americans. But then again, if you're trying to make specific appeals to various ethnic groups in order to boost your appeal with them, that's a risk you take. That's a calculated risk that you take in rhetoric to, you know, you, do, I, do I mention these people individually, uh, uh, you know, these groups individually in order to appeal to them directly? You know, arguably that's what's being done here. Our southern border is a pipeline for vast quantities of illegal drugs including meth, heroin, cocaine, and fentanyl. Every week, 300 of our citizens are killed by heroin alone, 90% of which floods across from our southern border. More Americans will die from drugs this year than were killed in the entire Vietnam War. Comparisons are obviously a great way to convey urgency in the audience without laboring on statistics. Um, the, the statistics are great, but it tends to not be as effective as personal stories that people can relate to. Now, obviously, the Vietnam War 
is, you know, something that has touched many, you know, not just American families, but families, you know, in Asia, you know, down here in Australia, the UK, but, you know, taking up the lion's share of that burden is obviously the American people. So that reference, you know, that comparison from drug-related deaths to the Vietnam War, even though it might be kind of a non sequitur, saying, you know, on one hand, 90% of heroin or whatever comes in over the border, that's not to say that 90% of people are killed by drugs that come over the southern border. But drug deaths will go beyond the Vietnam War. Now you are you are hitting people in a place, you know, a lot of people in a place, and whole families were affected by the Vietnam War, losing people and whatnot, L- you know, losing uh, brothers and sisters who were serving at the time. And, you know, those effects are still felt today. So if, you know, they might not necessarily have any kind of relationship to somebody suffering with drug abuse or drug addiction or losing somebody to those abuses and addictions, but they can then relate their experience to the drug uh, epidemic and put it into relatable terms because everybody knows a lot of people died uh, fighting in Vietnam. So that's that's another clever uh, speech writing trick. In the last two years, ICE officers made 266,000 arrests of aliens with criminal records, including those charged or convicted of 100,000 assaults, 30,000 sex crimes and 4,000 violent killings. Why I think that part is particularly important is for a couple of reasons. If you are somebody who is statistically minded, then you will take note of those individual statistics and you'll say, gee, that's a lot of people. But even if you relate more to personal stories or emotional rhetoric rather than statistical data, then you know this is a kind of overload of information. It's something that you talk about in debating, you know, when you're learning debating tactics and stuff, you know, in college or high school or whatever. Um, you hit your opponent with, you know, overwhelming data all at once. That way it's very difficult for your opponent to find ground in the debate and it's more difficult for them to effectively argue against it because they're not arguing against one thing, they're arguing against, you know, five or six things. So you might be able to effectively debate against one of those items that he said. You know, for example, you know, uh, fourth. Well, I forget the number now. Four, see, it's happening to me. Uh, four thousand assaults, or whatever it was, four thousand deaths. You might be able to say, well, on those four thousand deaths, uh, you know, you've you've got to factor in this. You've got to factor in that. Uh, record keeping in this area is bad. You know, the, this report here says that's not necessarily accurate. Blah 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 blah. But by the time you've gone through the whole litany of uh, action points that you need to hit in order to effectively guard against that particular rhetorical attack using that particular data set, you've still got four or five that have subconsciously uh, you know, implanted themselves into the audience and are just festering there and growing there. And they don't necessarily remember the numbers. They don't necessarily remember you know, what each individual item was, but they do remember the feeling of hearing all of those numbers back to back to back to back to back. And, you know, it's, it's profound when you hear it like that 266,000 people, a hundred thousand people with criminal records. Right. And, you know, those numbers are so big, you know, there's a thing in poker, you know, the poker players will understand this. Um, 
you know, good poker players will always throw their chips into the middle, you know, in a mess because people who aren't good at poker struggle to count or assess the amount of chips that are in the pot if they're not stacked neatly, right? So if they're stacked neatly, uh, the bad player can count how many chips are in there and he realizes how much money he's losing by playing this hand or potentially winning. You know, but if you just throw them in there in a big pile, it's much harder for the average player to assess how much money is actually in there. So, you know, if they think they're going to win, they'll think that it's more. If they think they're going to lose and you want them to fold so you can collect, it also looks like it's more chips in there. Like, oh, shit, I don't want to play for this much money, right? A similar kind of psychological effect happens when you overload your opponent in a debate setting or in a political speech. Because remember, we're talking about a showdown here. We're talking about a game of chicken. You know, this is speaking a lot to, you know, the the true believers of the Trump administration, they already either knew this stuff or they they are already on board with the arguments presented anyway. This is actually going to the Democrats and their supporters. You know, he's attempting to turn up the pressure on them. So when you overload people with that many stats back to back to back to back, uh, it becomes very difficult for your opponent to effectively argue against them. And it's hard for people to assess why each individual thing is wrong, but all they know is there's a lot of shit out there and it's bad, right? Over the years, thousands of Americans have been brutally killed by those who illegally entered our country and thousands more lives will be lost if we don't act right now. This is a humanitarian crisis, a crisis of the heart, and a crisis of the soul. Again, obviously, we're talking about a sense of urgency here. Um, You know, not only is it a sense of urgency, see, divorce yourself from, I know he said it's a crisis of the heart and a crisis for the soul, using particular moralistic language, again, speaking to uh, the people who are more affected by emotional rhetoric rather than strict data points and strict, you know, statistical stuff, right? And that's actually most people. Like a lesser amount of people can be convinced of a certain position with strict data. Most people are convinced of one thing or another using emotional appeals. Yeah, even though I wish it wasn't that way. Uh, so, but the sense of urgency here is: remember, the Democrats want him to fold and end the government shutdown. He doesn't want to fold and end the government shutdown. He wants the Democrats to fold and fund the wall. So he's saying, you know, you need to do this now. Brutal deaths, 100,000 of this statistic, 260,000 of that statistic, 4,000 of that statistic. It all builds up. And, you know, this is a crisis. He used the term crisis in two sentences, back to back. Again, expressing, you know, trying to convey a sense of urgency here. This is a crisis. You need to act now. This is a crisis. What about the 100,000 people? You know, it's, it's geared towards applying pressure to his opponents, in this case, the Democrats and their supporters, that I'm not backing down here. This is real. You need to understand how real it is. And bang, bang, you know, what's the term? Bing, bong, bong, bong. <laughs> the, the Donald Trump thing. And here's all the reasons why. Shotgun back to back to back to back. Last month, 20,000 migrant children were illegally brought into the United States, a dramatic increase. These children are used as human pawns by vicious coyotes and ruthless gangs. 
One in three women are sexually assaulted on the dangerous trek up through Mexico. Women and children are the biggest victims by far of our broken system. Now, you'll remember recently uh, one of the more successful attack points used by Donald Trump's opponents, the Democrats, and in large part the corporate press, has been attacking him on what? Separating women from children at the border, right? Now, of course, you know, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not talking about what Barack Obama did. I'm not, I'm not getting into whataboutism. We're just purely analysing the effectiveness of this speech. So using, uh, bringing up women and children as victims in favour of your argument, in favour of your side of the rhetorical battle, is actually a very effective thing to do. Because if you allow your opponents to own the imagery of, you know, crying children and huddled masses and women hugging their children and, you know, women being victims of, you know, sexual assault, sexual crimes, for example, if you allow your opponents to own that, that part of the battlefield when it comes to political speech, then whatever you do, they can use that against you. Like whatever argument you come up with, whatever policy you have, it's going to be less effective because then you, you're just giving a green light for your opponent to say, yes, but what about the women and children? And then it's very difficult to come back from that. You know, more women vote for the Democrats than they do for the Republicans and men want to protect women and everybody wants to protect children. So even though I don't necessarily think it's right to use women and children, quote unquote, politically, everybody does it and there's very good bloody reasons for it because it, it works. It's effective. So I don't mind that being injected in there. This is the tragic reality of illegal immigration on our southern border. This is the cycle of human suffering that I am determined to end. My administration has presented Congress with a detailed proposal to secure the border and stop the criminal gangs drug smugglers, and human traffickers. It's a tremendous problem. Our proposal was developed by law enforcement professionals and border agents at the Department of Homeland Security. These are the resources they have requested to properly perform their mission and keep America safe. In fact, safer than ever before. Now, see, the use of the term there, this is the cycle of human suffering that I am determined to end. I think that's effective because that conveys to the audience an inference that this has been happening for a very, very, very long time. <clears throat> now, of course, it has been happening for a long time, but in various degrees. What you're trying to say to people right now is it, it, it is the absolute worst thing right now. It has to be stopped absolutely right now. Because again, you're trying to apply pressure to your opponent to come to you and the shutdown and yield to fold. And the way that you do that is by convincing, you know, a large enough amount of people in the audience, you know, the voting public, that your uh, assessment of the situation is correct and the other people's assessment of the situation is incorrect or, uh, you know, fantastical or whatever. <clears throat> so... I am determined to end the cycle of suffering. This has been ongoing. It's been ongoing. But you've hit people with the statistics. You said last month, you know, 20,000 people. This is escalating. And then you top it off with an appeal to authority. 
So, hey, my plan has been developed by law enforcement experts. My plan has been developed by border agents. This is what they need to end the cycle of suffering. What I'm giving you is what they need, which is what you need, which is what everybody should want, right? So the appeal to authority comes after you've created the sense of urgency, after you've overloaded with data to make it difficult to argue against any specific point. You've embedded into the audience um, that sense of urgency with the, you know, the overwhelming brutality of the situation that you're trying to convey, that, that you're trying to paint a picture of. And then you say, hey, I'm the guy. I can make it safe. I've got the solutions. I've got the authorities right here the border experts, the law enforcement experts, if you come to me, you do it my way, everything's going to be okay. You know, of course, it, everything is not going to be okay. It doesn't mean that, you know, <clears throat> it doesn't mean that, you know, illegal immigration will stop completely. It doesn't mean that people won't get killed. But again, that's an argument for a different time. This is, this is the, you know, the action, the motivation, and the impression that you're trying to create in the audience by using this particular language. The proposal from Homeland Security includes cutting-edge technology for detecting drugs, weapons, illegal contraband, and many other things. We have requested more agents, immigration judges, and bed space to process the sharp rise in unlawful migration fueled by our very strong economy. Our plan also contains an urgent request for humanitarian assistance and medical support. Now, I say I love that for a couple of reasons. Uh, you managed to get in a plug about the economy. You know, hey, the reason that more people, the reason that this is such a problem now is because I've kicked so much ass on the economy, which I thought was a very, <laughs> a very slight uh, play there, which I very much appreciated. It's probably not enough for people to pick up on. Like, they're probably not going to criticize you on it. But it definitely does, again, implant in the audience a sense that, hey, things are going pretty well under me, you know, <laughs> despite all this malarkey at the border. And then after that, so I thought that was very cheeky, but very good. And after that, the references to uh, medical aid, humanitarian aid, because you're trying to uh, convey a sense of urgency. You're trying to say that this is brutal. This is dangerous. It's never been this bad. But at the same time, you're not you don't want to appear heartless and you don't want to appear cold and distant, right? You're trying to strike a balance between, hey, there's a security issue here, but also these people, you know, they're being raped. They're, they're being brutalized too. You know, they have, uh, they are under harsh conditions as well. And the current situation, it's not good for us, but it's also not good for them. So you're trying to corner off your opponent who's going to be saying, uh, this is all about you and you don't care about people. So with, you know, talking about humanitarian aid, with talking about the victims who are also coming from the north, not only the victims in the United States, but also the victims who are migrating themselves, you are striking that balance or attempting to, like whether, whether it works or not, pfft, you know, for some people it will, for some people it won't. This, this is the thing about political speech and political speech writing your intentions don't always, you know, it's not an exact science here. You know, it's not like you're mixing chemicals in a lab. You, you go into a speech, you know, with a particular um, objective, with a particular outcome in mind, 
and you have a certain game plan about how you're going to get there, but it doesn't necessarily always work. And, you know, you might think that it will work for 80% of the people and it only works for 20% of the people. You might think you're speaking to a particular audience, but then another audience will find something else wrong with it, right? So it's never an exact science. You're just trying to do the the best possible thing you can. So I just want to get ahead of the people who are going to comment and say, well, I didn't think that. Well, I'm not saying you did think that, but I'm saying the use of the rhetoric here, the use of language, the way this speech is structured, this is what I believe is the intention behind the words that are being used and the subtext, right? Furthermore, we have asked Congress to close border security loopholes so that illegal immigrant children can be safely and humanely returned back home. Finally, as part of an overall approach to border security, law enforcement professionals have requested $5.7 billion for a physical barrier. At the request of Democrats, it will be a steel barrier rather than a concrete wall. This barrier is absolutely critical to border security. It's now, see, putting it on Congress, saying this is Congress's problem, this is not my problem, Congress needs to do this, this, you know, this is effectively out of my hands because the Democrats want Trump to own, not, not just own the whole wall issue, but own the fact that there isn't a wall why? Because this is going to be effective in divorcing Donald Trump from his support base. They aren't stupid. They know a lot of people were watching when Donald Trump was on the verge of yielding to the spending bill without wall funding. And they know that a lot of his most vocal supporters started to turn on him. So the longer that they can have the situation where there is no border wall, they know the more of Donald Trump's support that they can chip away. Right, And so this is Donald Trump's attempt to say, hey, this isn't me, this is Congress. This is up to Congress now. It's not up to me. And, you know, people will say, well, you know, the Republicans had Congress, you know, the Republicans have the Senate and the presidency. Why didn't they get this done before? I, I agree. But that's, you know, that's not what we're analyzing here. That's already happened. It's a different ball game now. So Donald Trump is trying to put the pressure on Congress to own this fact, you know, in light of all that we've heard previously in this speech. He also said, at the request of the Democrats, it's going to be a steel barrier, not a concrete wall. And I, I think that's important there because, again, he's trying to convey to the audience, hey, the Democrats have even wanted this too. This isn't just me. This is something that everybody knows we need. So, you know, the Democrats, not only have they said previously that they want a wall, they have even submitted design design theories about what the wall should look like. So this isn't a, you know, a hugely, you know, this isn't some fantasy that I've cooked up overnight. This is something that's been talked about for a very long time. But go back to the previous part of the speech, he, he said, I'm determined to end the cycle of suffering. So a lot of people have talked about a wall. I'm the guy that's going to build it. This is what you're trying to project outwardly onto the audience. Also what our professionals at the border want and need. This is just common sense. The border wall would very quickly pay for itself. The cost of illegal drugs exceeds $500 billion a year, vastly more than the $5.7 billion we have requested from Congress. The wall will also be paid for indirectly 
by the great new trade deal we have made with Mexico. Uh, another another cheeky backhander there. The great new trade deal we've made with Mexico. We've made with Mexico. You know, another little plug for the administration along the way. But that's fine. That's fine. All is fair in love and speech writing. So by by saying uh, Mexico is indirectly paying for it, because one of the attack points that his opponents have been using here is that hey, you said that the taxpayers would never have to pay for this. You said that Mexico is going to pay for it. So I think that's a specific uh, reference put in there for that reason, to say, hey, Mexico is paying for it. They're not handing us a big oversized novelty check, but they're paying for it. Why? Because I made such a great fucking trade deal, <laughs> right? I don't think that's I don't think that's any you know I don't think that's anything particularly deep and layered there. I think that is what it is. Senator Chuck Schumer, who you will be hearing from later tonight has repeatedly supported a physical barrier in the past, along with many other Democrats. They changed their mind only after I was elected president. Democrats in Congress have refused to acknowledge the crisis, and they have refused to provide our brave border agents with the tools they desperately need to protect our families and our nation. Now, of course, this is obvious. At this point, people will say, you know, Democrats will say, hey, you know, the Republicans haven't built a border wall either. They had the Congress. They had the Senate. They have the the presidency. They didn't do it, which is all very fair, which is all very true. But you're trying to score political points against your opponent here. And don't say, oh, that's not right that nobody... If you want to have those kinds of, you know, uh, thinly veiled, intellectually lacking kind of arguments where you just accuse people of being immoral or being heartless or not having empathy and that kind of stuff, that's fine, but I'm just not interested in that shit for the most part. You know, that's that's not the mechanics of what happens here. That's the stuff for you, right? That's not the stuff for these people. These people operate on a different level and you're being fed their shit and being led around by the nose where they want you to go. And what I'm trying to do here is break down those barriers a little bit. So if you want to have the arguments like I'm not being moral enough or empathetic enough, that's fine, but I'm just not going to pay it any attention. By bringing up that Chuck Schumer in the past and other Democrats have supported a physical barrier, it's an attempted wedge, you know, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be effective. People are far too painted into their own corners now. So it's, there's no harm in throwing it in there. Saying, you know, Chuck Schumer has said before that he supports a physical barrier, but he only changed his mind once I became president. I think I think a larger narrative here is if you want to be, you know, bipartisan about this, I think most people, well, maybe not most, maybe I think it's most and maybe it's not. I think a lot of people realize that uh, at the top, at the top levels, both the Republicans and the Democrats have been against uh, border and immigration reform for their own reasons. And, you know, to a large extent, Donald Trump was elected. We've we've been over this many times. We'll say it again. Uh, he was elected thanks to former Democrat voters in the blue wall states who arguably had enough. They were sick. Maybe they weren't sick of the Democrats. Maybe they weren't sick of the Republicans. Maybe they hated the Republicans for a long time. Maybe they hated the Democrats for a long time. I think a lot of the votes that went to Donald Trump in these areas were people sick of politics not necessarily pick, uh, sick of a particular party or not necessarily sick of a p- 
particular politician. And so, I, you know, obviously Donald Trump is a Republican president. He can't come out and attack his own party, so obviously. But there are slight, you know, subtexts during this speech that, you know, hey, I'm just the guy who's trying to fix what both of these fuckers haven't been able to fix. I'm the guy that's trying to correct what hasn't been corrected. You know, he doesn't lavish any praise on the Republican Party either. He doesn't attack them directly, but he doesn't give them a pat on the back for saying, job well done, but we need to do more. Most politicians at this level and, you know, in these kinds of speeches will say, you know, the Republican Party is doing a lot, but we need to do more. Or the Democrats have done, we've progressed so much, but there's more work to do. He doesn't do any of that. He says there's a, you know, there's a cycle of misery that needs to come to an end. And by the way, the guy who's most vocal against me ending this cycle of misery, well, not long ago, he supported what I'm doing now. You know, and if, if you're a lifelong Democrat, why did he do that? Why did he change his mind? Is it because we might actually get something done? I put out on Twitter earlier today <clears throat> that, you know, Chuck Schumer will get to the, the Democrat response to this. And I, I do want to keep it to, an, you know, an hour or so. So I'll try to burn through the rest. But Chuck Schumer, in his response, again mentioned for the 500th time, there is a bipartisan bill in front of the president that he can sign that will reopen the government and then we can continue arguing about the border. And I would suggest that it's not in the political class's interest to have a resolution on the border, you know, whether it be establishment Republican or establishment Democrat, of which Donald Trump is neither. You know, this is just my opinion here, but I would suggest that if there is some kind of resolution on the border and, you know, on the immigration issue, then the political class ceases to have a reason to justify their own existence. You know, I think, I think the whole point of having a bill in front of Donald Trump that says, oh, we can keep the border debate going is not to find a resolution. It's to keep the border debate going endlessly into the future. You know, on the Democrat side, so they can roll around in 2020 and say, see, Donald Trump broke his promise. There's no wall. Don't vote for him. He breaks his promises. He talks about keeping his promises and then he breaks them. He didn't get a border wall. By that time, everybody will have mostly forgotten this stuff. And don't say you don't believe me. You know it's true. People have very short attention spans now. You know, on the Republican side, the, the side that never wanted Donald Trump, you know, in the first place because he doesn't play the rules, he doesn't play by the, their rules, well, they're not going to want it either because they, they would prefer to have him kicked out and a Democrat take office and then plan their return to the White House four years from then, then put up with Donald Trump for another four years, showing everybody how incompetent they've been for the last 40 years. But again, that's just my opinion. The federal government remains shut down for one reason and one reason only, because Democrats will not fund border security. My administration is doing everything in our power to help those impacted by the situation. But the only solution is for Democrats to pass a spending bill that defends our borders and reopens the government. This situation could be solved in a 45-minute meeting. 
I have invited congressional leadership to the White House tomorrow to get this done. I know it's an obvious one, but it's worth mentioning there is specific delivery being used here so that, you know, specific importance can be placed on specific words and terms. Will not fund border security. You know, all of this can be solved in a 45-minute meeting and I've invited people over so we can get this done. You know, Donald Trump, for all of his failings, is a very good salesman. And that's the type of technique a salesman would use in order to, again, leave you with the impression that border security must get done. That's why you present it in that particular way, with those pauses, with a full stop after each word. Hopefully, we can rise above partisan politics in order to support national security. Some have suggested a barrier is immoral. Then why do wealthy politicians build walls, fences, and gates around their homes? Now, I thought that was a very, that was a very good one. Some have suggested that border security is immoral, so why do wealthy politicians put fences and gates around their homes? Even using injecting, you know, we spoke about the injection of singular words at various times to convey a different meaning to people or a different emotional reaction. <clears throat> By using the term, instead of just politicians, he said wealthy politicians. Everybody instantly forgets that he is a very wealthy politician. Right? But he's not the one that's arguing against the wall. He's arguing for it. But by using the term wealthy politicians, it's playing the class game. You know, the, the victims of these 100,000 assaults and the 4,000 murders and the drugs being brought across the border and the families and the poor families and the women and the children who are being abused as they enter the country illegally. These are not wealthy politicians. These are poor people, right? So you're conveying the inference that the wealthy politician, it's, it's do what I say and, you know, not what I do kind of thing. I can have my border. I can have my fence. I can have my wall, but you can't have yours. That's the impression he's trying to deliver here. They don't build walls because they hate the people on the outside but because they love the people on the inside. The only thing that is immoral is the politicians to do nothing and continue to allow more innocent people to be so horribly victimized. America's heart broke the day after Christmas when a young police officer in California was savagely murdered in cold blood by an illegal alien who just came across the border. The life of an American hero was stolen by someone who had no right to be in our country. Day after day, precious lives are cut short by those who have violated our borders. In California, an Air Force veteran was raped, murdered, and beaten to death with a hammer by an illegal alien with a long criminal history. Now, personal stories again, you know, we've, we've spoken about it earlier in the show. Statistics don't always necessarily get the job, 
uh, get the job done. If you can personalize those statistics, if you can make them relatable with stories and storytelling, then it becomes very effective. And, you know, he may get criticized for going into specific detail about the woman who was raped and murdered, beaten to death with a hammer, right? I mean, it's brutal. It's brutal. And people will say, oh, well, that's inappropriate. You shouldn't have said that. But again, using that kind of brutal imagery is something that reaches into, you know, the it pulls on the heartstrings, but more so it presents a very confronting vision of reality to the listener. And it's it's an it's image it's imagery that's very difficult to dismiss. Because even just the retelling of what happened, the recanting of what happened, um, you, it can't. It's unavoidable to have you know specific imagery flash up in your brain when you hear that kind of story, and that's a very very effective tool in speech writing. The use of imagery in general. In Georgia, an illegal alien was recently charged with murder for killing, beheading, and dismembering his neighbor. In Maryland, MS-13 gang members who arrived in the United States as unaccompanied minors were arrested and charged last year after viciously stabbing and beating a 16-year-old girl. Over the last several years, I've met with dozens of families whose loved ones were stolen by illegal immigration. I've held the hands of the weeping mothers and embraced the grief-stricken fathers. So sad. Again, more imagery being used there and the personal touch, the personal uh, relatability that there you can picture him holding hands with a weeping mother you can picture a grief stricken father and on the back of you know the two particularly brutal retellings of you know events that took place you know someone being beaten to death with a hammer raped and beaten to death with a hammer and someone being beheaded and then you chase that you know that rather harsh imagery up with the sympathetic, with the human, with the personal, with the caring, with the empathetic, straight away, bang, bang. So as the audience is reeling in a sense of shock, again, you know, that's this isn't necessarily what happens to everybody, but this is the intention of structuring it this way. Please learn the difference. So by going from back to back, you know, from the, the brutal horror to the sympathetic, you know, I care. I care about you. I care about this problem. Something needs to be done. I'm not a bad guy. I'm a good guy, right? So terrible. I will never forget the pain in their eyes, the tremble in their voices, and the sadness gripping their souls. How much more American blood must we shed before Congress does its job? For those who refuse to compromise in the name of border security, I would ask, imagine if it was your child, your husband, or your wife, whose life was so cruelly shattered and totally broken. Again, that's a very obvious one. You know, not only is it some person that you can relate to, what if it's you? 
right? So you have a certain, it's, it's in a certain place in your cognitive pecking order when you say, you know, when you point to specific people, but they're distant, they're, they're removed. It's not someone you know. It's not someone you personally love. It's not someone you personally care about. So you've set the environment. You've then given the relatable, personable, empathetic, you know, I will never forget the fear, the trembling, the weeping. And then you put it on the audience to, you, you push it further into their face. Say, what if that was you? What would you think about border security then, right? You're, you're attempting to force the audience to come to you when, you when you make appeals like that, emotional appeals, generally. For every member of Congress, pass a bill that ends this crisis. To every citizen, call Congress and tell them to finally, after all of these decades, secure our border. This is a choice between right and wrong, justice and injustice. This is about whether we fulfill our sacred duty to the American citizens we serve. When I took the oath of office, I swore to protect our country. And that is what I will always do. So help me God. Thank you and good night. I was actually surprised that he didn't throw in a God bless America at the end there. I don't know. Did anyone else notice that? Is that, is that something that's common in these national addresses? You know, good night, God bless you, God bless America. Or is that more of a campaign speech thing? I'm not sure on that. But that, that took me a bit by surprise that there was no God bless America at the end there. But um, the way the speech ended, I think, could have been a little stronger. But, you know, just in that bit, I mean, the lead up to the crescendo was quite, you know, it was stark. The imagery was, you know, grotesque and brutal and effective as was the juxtaposition with the sympathy and the empathy. And, you know, I, you know, everybody takes an oath of office to protect people on the back of those stories. You know, he's saying, I'm the protector and Congress needs to be a protector too. You know, in, in that last section there, he didn't say the Democrats. He could have said the Democrats, but he didn't. He said Congress. So in, in that sense, you're, you know, because you've attacked the Democrats during the speech, but at the end there, you know, you want to make it bipartisan. You, wanna, you, wanna, you, you don't want to be able to give your opponents an easy option to say, stop making it political. You're only doing this to attack the Democrats. If you leave the audience with, this is up to Congress, not me, you know, regardless of who's in control of Congress or what's going on there, you're attempting to divorce yourself from the day in, day out politics of the situation and say this is about something bigger than that. This is about more than that, whether it is or not, regardless of whether it is or not. So there you go. I, I hope you got something out of that. I hope you enjoyed it. We might actually split it in two parts. So I might do the Democrat Party response to this uh, for tomorrow's podcast because we have been going for an hour for a nine-minute speech. <laughs> You, you can see how much fun, if you're a writer or if you've ever been involved in, you know, the speech writing process at any level, you can see how uh, intensive and how y you, you think through every single word and you're, you're trying to 
you know, effectively uh, grasp the persona and the mannerisms of the person who's delivering the speech. You're trying to convey certain messages in order to achieve certain objectives. And you can see how in-depth this stuff can go when you break it down on this level. So what I think I might do in the interest of brevity is end this show here and we'll come back tomorrow with the Democrat Party response. Same thing. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow for Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and we'll see what we can get out of that. Uh, If you want to become a supporter of the show, please head over to patreon.com forward slash boogie bumper. If you'd like to become a subscriber, hit that subscribe button on your preferred podcast player. And if you'd like to get involved in this discussion and other discussions, please do so by going over to Twitter and following me at Boogie Bumper. Until next time, guys, stay calm, stay rational. God bless. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.